Today I have with me Mike Watt, the legendary Mike Watt. You might know Mike Watt from the Minutemen. You might know him as the bass player of the Stooges. You might know him from his solo career, which launched the Foo Fighters. You might know him from the plethora of projects he's been a part of. Watt has been a huge influence on Coda and I. Um, one of the first shows we saw at the Grog Shop in 2011 was Mike Watt and the Missing Men on the Third Opera Tour. And there is this, this, their story, his story with D Boone, I think just resonated with us because of the absurdity of the perchance you meet this person that wants to go on this insane adventure through you making music just hit home. Um, so this was a great honor to talk with Mike. Mike, he's a particular individual. When you hear him talk, he talks kind of like the Minutemen music, right? He comes at you with a lot really quick, and each thing he comes at you with is this nugget of like, in uh, this nugget of uh, of inspiration, this of well thought outness. There's everything he says he means, and like I appreciate that so much. Like I don't think, like the last interview I did with Kevin Eastman, blew my mind, and every answer he said was like the answer you want to hear. Do you like Bruce Lee? Yeah, he means everything. You're like, <gasps> like so epic. With Watt, it was like every sentence was something like that. It just brought out this thing. And like for me, I was taken away with this. I was kind of along for the ride in this interview, um, which that's the conversation I want to have with Mike Watt. I want my mind blown. And that definitely happened. But before we get into the interview, I want to thank everyone who came out to the Grog Shop in the Beachland um, last last weekend or whenever you're listening to this on the November 13th and 14th. You guys are amazing. We raised over like $3,000 for both venues to stay open or like to keep the funds going, especially now with both venues temporarily shutting down. And I know both of that is going to go to a good place. And all the friends who donated online, we could not have asked for a more amazing moment to celebrate our 10th anniversary than selling out both nights, which is absurd to even think about. And the fact that all our homies showed up, like playing with George and playing with Benny and Leah and everyone who came out to make the set special. We can't thank you enough and everyone that, because I know it's weird times and going out to things like this is not comforting. And the people that did come out and put themselves at risk to hang out and help these venues stay open. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now, we're going to get into it. Um, also, I want to thank Howard for making this happen. He did me a solid and got me in with Mike. I can't thank you enough either. This is just a big thank you before we get into talking with Watt. This is going to be the first time I've ever done a two-parter podcast. So this is part one. And at first when I reached out to him, there was like with email, I wasn't sure if he was supposed to call me or I was supposed to call him. So I sent a message saying, hey man, ready to go. And didn't hear back and I waited and I waited and I waited and I couldn't see the online thing on Skype. So I didn't know if he was online and eventually I just call. And um, he's like, man, you know, I was waiting for you. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I've never done that. You know, and, and with Mike Watt, someone I've been dying to talk to and pick his brain about. And I'm already starting off rough. So I cut it out so you don't really hear it. But at the beginning, there was like this whole thing with time being messed up. And like, I thought maybe he was angry with me, but he wasn't. And I hear it now listening back with the tone. Um but this was something, man, really, really excited to share this conversation with you. And in both parts, this is going to be part one, both parts as a Mike Watt fan or as a Stooges fan or as a John Coltrane fan, 
or as a Minuteman fan, this two-parter podcast is for you. Um, a little, a little bit more um, work before we get into it. Studio Forty Four has been mixing um, all the podcasts. So if you guys have any audio needs, Studio Forty Four Cleveland, Jay Sparrow, our homie who also played and produced both nights at the Beachland Grog, is doing this. So make sure you reach out to him and. If you can like, rate, subscribe, review, comment, share, whatever you want to do, the podcast on all the platforms, it helps us keep, uh, helps us as me keep doing this podcast and b- being able to talk to more cool people and share it with you. Um, also, I just started a YouTube, and uh, so if you follow Zig at the gig on YouTube, that would be a huge help. Uh, yeah, a little technical stuff. It's good to know, but it's not the whole dealio. It's yeah. more like the way I look at it, it's more like, you know, like steak knife, you know, cut the steak or cut your friend. I mean, you learn how to use this shit. <laughs> yeah. Right. You don't really have to know the all the nuts and bolts. Got it. So it's the process, the 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 how yeah, far the know, tool like, can take you. I mean, you play guitar, so you know where to put your fingers on some of the strings that probably didn't come right away. Definitely not. Definitely not. Okay. But it's, then you got into writing songs and shit, right? It was one foot in front of the other. And it was a process. And maybe it's the same thing with this internet and Peter shit. Yeah. But like I said, you don't really have to know how it all runs to use it. True. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, there's a lot of friends that... No, but internet too. Because if you don't use it, think of it as a vehicle, you can get nerded out and you end up with, yeah, just the gear and shit. Yeah. Well, I see people do this with music. They talk all about the amplifiers and the guitars, they end up writing those songs. <laughs> definitely. Def- I used to work at a guitar center, and I'd, I'd meet those guys every week. They would come back looking for the new pedal yeah, for the tone. Shithard shit center. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, they, they're looking for the tone. Look, it's like conspiracy theories. People want a shortcut on the truth. For sure. They don't want to do any of the legwork. But you know, you know, like anything, like when you first get on the skateboard, it's not Ollie's right away. <laughs> yeah, it's pushing. <laughs> and really, That's a, good a better skateboard. Uh, now, I will say, there are things that are game changers. For example, the skateboard. Yeah. Urethane tires. Now, you, you don't even realize this because it's probably been your whole life. But I come from a day where they had these red chalk pieces of shit where you couldn't even, the smallest pebble would knock you over. Yeah. Your thing changed. Yeah, because you, yeah, yeah red chalk, you know, there, there was another kind that you steal. They ended up like eight sided shit. Yeah, I don't, that wouldn't roll too well at all. But that's <laughs> how, that's what happened in the 60s and shit. It was in, later in the 70s where these urethane came out. And that was a huge game changer. Uh, the stand-up bass going to the bass guitar, Leo Fender. Yeah. Game changer. But what did it take? It took a James Jamerson. It took a human to make really the ch- change work, even though that yeah. technology came. Until it's applied, it's just floating out there in the idea world with all the other shit. But then when somebody applies it, like a, uh, the Dogtown guys getting the urethane and doing the pools, and yeah. you know what I mean? Then, then all of a sudden, yeah, wow. You know, you know, when I was a boy, you couldn't stand up on it because, like I said, the littlest pebbles. And you <laughs> were sitting on these motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, going down the hill like a little go kart, which is which is even fun. The cracks, but... Even the cracks would knock your ass over, like, let alone the street. 
couldn't do the street. It was just too rough. Well, it's the artist taking the, the paint to the canvas in the sense of the growth of technology in whatever form it is. Was skateboarding big for you? Uh, I have bad knees, so it was terrible. And also, <laughs> like this kind of thing, by the year, time your thing comes up, my, I, I'm, I'm having knee surgery. I can't even entertain the thought. Oh, man. In Me? fact, uh, what's his name? Brandon. He's saying for JFA. Yeah. Okay, he uh, he was editor for Thrasher. He had me write a column in Thrasher about why I try to work the bass like it was a skateboard. So, like, metaphor, allegory-wise, yeah. I'm bored with the skaters all the time. You know, you can make, especially like Tony Al, you know, those guys, you know, have a gig anywhere. It's, yeah. the same, it's the same ethics as having a punk band. And notice I say punk band not in a style of music in a way of just being able to play anywhere and make songs anywhere. Maybe you don't have a lot of money. Maybe you don't have a lot of experience or uh, with that T word talent, whatever the fuck people want to judge you with. Yeah. You go out, you make a parallel universe. So that's that, that, that I, I can so, same with fanzines, right? Yeah. No, no metal man, right? You and Kinko's <laughs> that's, it. that's a relationship, <laughs> right? And, and then you put anything you want in, like having your own website. Why go to Shitter? Why go to Fake Look? Yeah, no, it's making like, your it's own art anywhere. Well, it's a telephone pole. You can staple up some flyers. But to make that your home base? Come on. Get me a shovel. <laughs> Was it you guys? Your music's featured in a lot of, like, skate video, or skate tapes. Skate tapes. Well, yeah, especially by the time Firehose. Yeah. Because this is the era of the VHS. In fact, I, I met skaters in Europe that learned skateboarding totally from them. Take Ohio Skate Out, Santa Cruz, yeah. Pizza Fire, right? Uh, so it was us in the right time, right place. But it actually was starting even in Minutemen days. You know, I could see that's Tony Alvin. Those, he, I think he's my age. So that's where I first saw it. Now they probably skated more to Van Halen and shit, but we're not talking about really the the works we're talking about the ethic yeah and that's where i think it's really the same we're using the sicano device you can come up with your own style to express yourself and that's the way i look at the pug movement it don't even have to have a guitar i remember some of them band, like first band that could sell out the whiskey was the screamers they didn't even have a guitar they didn't play fast you know it's weird how humans Especially when the slogan was anarchy, <laughs> right away a lot of rules, and uniforms, and labels, and all this, and it's just the way we are about things. We want to liberate ourselves, and, and then right away, confined way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is strange. Pat Boone, Pat Boone sold way more tutti fruities than Little Richard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But but that's, and that was what like seventy five years ago. Yeah, so it's not a new thing. Was it? I think I, I read a quote um, from you saying that the only new thing about punk is discovering it. Well, what happened was there was a, a band from the city, uh, San Francisco called Black Humor. Yeah. And they, they, they had this weird-ass fucking album. And uh, it was kind of like Throb and Gristle type, right? Okay. Not fat, uh, it, was, it was just really wild. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And there's this one song where one of the lyrics is, uh, the only thing new is you finding out about it. And I thought, yeah, because the do-it-yourself thing actually 
Dave, it goes back to at least Walt Whitman with his uh, yeah, leaves of grass, 1855. He puts that motherfucker out himself. He writes 12 poems. He thinks he's going to stop this because the Civil War was a slow slide, you know. Yeah. Everybody knew it was coming. And he thought dudes would, like, read this shit at lunch, at work, you know, at, on the farm, at the factory. And, like, fuck it. Let's don't fight. <laughs> but, I mean, you know what I mean? When yeah. I can see some of them same ethics 175 years later. So that's why I say uh, I used that quote from that song. I can't remember what it was called, but it's on that, uh, you know, it was funny too. They did. They went to thrift stores and bought uh, like soul music record co- records, and then used the covers and painted their own name on it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Only a couple hundred or shit, but uh, j- j- you know, you know what I mean. The whole idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and there's a lot of traditions to draw from, not just uh, Walt Whitman. I mean, he's U.S., so it's kind of good to use him. But then there was the Dada people in Europe during yeah. the First World War, right, Switzerland, in the neutral part. And uh, later on, the Surrealist and uh, all, all, all kinds of things. It's like, God, in a way, it's tradi- it's got traditions, you know when they say conservative, right? You, you oh, you're a traditionalist. Yeah. But they, they they're they're cherry picking which traditions. <laughs> That's true. They don't like these other t- kind of traditions, right? The pioneer guys uh, with the arts and expression, and uh, you know, D- DIY. I mean, you know, indie is the name of a music. What the fuck? How does that <laughs> describe music? <laughs> For sure, that doesn't you know, at all. It's, when it's, you... yeah, it's a marketing device, right? Yeah, okay. Was it? It's, it's all that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. You, when you say indie music or alternative rock, it doesn't I, really like. Worse, and I told yeah. people to watch out when that word came around. Look who who's using it now. These yeah. fucking uh, extreme right wing, you know. Yeah, yeah. The alt thing took an wrong, yeah, <laughs> horribly wrong turn. Word. I said that word is like. I mean, what is the alternative to music? Silence. Yeah. Right? Sean Cage worked that out for us. We don't need to fucking brand. Uh, you know, punk was a guy getting fucked in jail for cigarettes. Yeah, it was a bad word. But, you know, people, if you ask me, the movement was a reaction because I served 125 weeks with the Stooges. So I know yeah. there was a garage band scene in the 60s and little labels and the whole, you know, whole trip, small clubs and shit I never knew. Right, I'm 13 in 1970. The first gig I went to uh, was with D. Boone to see T-Rex. We didn't know about uh, yeah. rock and roll had turned into Nuremberg rallies. I mean, I love that T-Rex gig, but he was like a quarter inch tall, yeah. <laughs> and that was a small pad, right? Three thousand or something. Yeah, but still, that's a lot of people, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm saying compared to a club. So what I'm yeah. saying is bit in a way that's why i say only thing new is you finding out about it. we had already went went through the roadhouse and rock and roll uh club thing but for some reason that on a marketing level that was obsolete and you make a lot more bones with uh nuremberg rally to style uh arena rock yeah. right yeah yeah but what what got lost all kinds of shit got lost right so definitely there's a whole bunch of like smaller bands that are doing way more artistically inspiring That's and challenging true. things. Even the songs, even the songs. Can you really write a song with a lot of changes in a big sports arena? It's going to be a big fucking dent. <laughs> I saw orchestra at Long Beach Arena. Now they curtained off, you know, most of it, but it's still, you can't hear the part. So you have to yeah. even write certain kinds of music for that kind of, uh, 
setting, you know, yeah. very few short chords, very simple beats. Keep it in four. If We Will Rock You was in seven, I don't think anyone, any stadium would be playing yeah, it. Like the, uh, the Rock and Roll Part 2, Gary Glitter. I mean, yeah. that, no one works good at fucking baseball games and shit. Another thing that would be like, uh, wow, man, what was I going to say? I'm totally brain farting. Um, how music's like even the outlet that's put to, right? So if it's arena rock or now it's like Spotify or like singles. Okay, over the internet, right? People yeah, are listening yeah. over the internet. Because the internet isn't just a way to collaborate, it's a way to deliver music to people's yeah. Uh Spotify seems like kind of a ripoff. Definitely. I think a more healthy version is the band camp. I agree. Because I think what the or... band camp, what people tell me that use this kind of shit, what band camp's got to do is get some kind of playlist thing going. Yeah. Because that's the only thing that the Spotify has on them. The Spotify has a really lame deal with the artists. Bandcamp people seem a lot more equitable. Yeah. Well, they kind of just put it all on the artist to some degree. There's like a small cut, it seems like, but you can name your your ticket and you can put out just about anything right away. And like, there's not like this layover and there's not like this social media follow aspect. So what? But I hear you saying, Dave, though, there is some positive things about music coming over the Internet. It oh, depends how it's it's being done. Yeah. I think that's, that's the question. It's And I don't think the Spotify way is yeah, maybe the most happy. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody and music I know, you know, musician people, yeah, yeah. they think punk. <laughs> that's what I heard. Got well, I no, I just I just ignore the shit because I don't want to get depressed. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But but it seems like the band camp. If you were asking me to judge between the two, yeah, band camp would be the way to go. It, it yeah it, oh, out there yeah right what was before CD baby yeah um, what was the other one uh, which is CD still kind of making a physical kind of thing yeah yeah. Right, whereas Bandcamp is saying no, you know, you can have stuff over the internet and physical things, right? Because people sell records over that too. For sure, there's definitely there's definitely the market for the the vinyl and actual having actually having yeah. the CD and right. seeing who did what and all the details that you don't get. Bandcamp's yeah. kind of cool because yeah. that's all right there. You can scroll down and see it on Spotify. Yeah. You really can't. Like they don't want you. They want the the man behind the curtain running everything. Yeah. And that it's so algorithmic. Like we had enough of that. <laughs> yeah, algorithmically fed, and it's it's interesting because like with yeah, arena, like FM radio when I was a yeah, kid, yeah, and the playlist, right? Okay, Stairway to Heaven fifty times a day, but not you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just so interesting how like those avenues take place, and like how still, then again, like all these artists really doing these challenging and, and exciting things are back under the curtain or behind the curtain or in the outskirts again, even though the internet's connecting everybody, but there is an avenue I and mean, it's not all, uh, it's like we started off this, this conversation. I'm not having to go to your house and give you the record. You know, I got to send it over to you like behind a, the, actually at the grog shops when I sent you all those files, when we were doing that benefit thing but okay. in the green room, you know what I mean? Like it, that's great. <laughs> so there's yeah, this, side stage. It's right on the side stage here. Yeah. 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 Patches right there, yeah. Um, well, yeah, so that's why I'm saying it's not all bad. You know, all the collaborations I've been doing the last seven, eight months. Which are well, a lot. Actually, longer than that, you know. Yeah. The one thing we got to work out is latency so we can start fucking actually playing in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I saw and that'll one. come. That'll come. There was, yeah, no, with all this downtime, the tech people got time to do the thing, the passion project, to bring the things together. Um, I saw there was some app called like a Tom's, Tom's Drive or something like that. I'll, I'm going to bring it up here in a second. But like where they were getting close to the, fixing the latency for musicians to play together. Yeah, so you can play friend. it time, you know. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's kind of tough. That's kind of, but in the meantime, we could trade files at least. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's head shoulders over what, you know, Minuteman days, you, you, you know, what, send the whole reel of tape? Yeah. I mean, that's done. Shit like that was done. Wait, wait. The first Dose album being K made by trading cassettes. Uh, she was in Connecticut. I'm in California. Was trading uh, four track cassettes. Wow. So, I mean, if, you know, if there's a will, there's a way, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. See, and, and, and the bottom line is technology won't solve anything anyway. It's always going to, you're going to always have to have the creative problem <laughs> but i'd rather have that a problem than anything else for sure rather hit the wall trying should to it already be figured out you know should you have you know no creative challenge there's just things are you know you, songs just pop out of your head <laughs> wouldn't be the same that's for sure that's i was always wondering with how dose records how you guys wrote because that, for two bases yeah like the parts well, are it's so a very narrow it's a very narrow spectrum of the frequency range right right what you got to do is kind of work the holes actually you got to do this too with a uh, uh, drummer yeah kick drum I, mean, I know it looks like a guitar and some guys a lot of guys play it like a guitar but it's actually a drum in a way the closest notes are the kick and the toms yeah so you got to play the holes there too it's interesting that is that's just... the big daddy is james jamerson he's yeah. the guy yeah, he's the guy we all look up to without even knowing it. <laughs> well, man, the Funk Brothers and everything they laid out, nothing but hits. And yeah, James Jamerson. Yeah, big drummer man, too. Yeah. Um, Pistol Pete Allen and uh, before him, Betty Benjamin. Yeah. Yeah, these guys. Uh, uh, and then, yeah, uh, Bob Baffert after with On the Bass. And, but, but, you know, James Jamerson, he's coming from the stand-up and, you know, most quote musicians unquote were considering this device a toy wouldn't play it the stand-up no the electric gotcha <laughs> actually my union my first union card said fender bass they called it the fender bass because leo you know why it's called precision precise sound no frets oh that's duh that makes sense bass because giant uh, basses were giant fucking violins without yeah. a chin yeah Wow. Okay, I never put that together. I never. He, uh, well, he 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 played a little saxophone, a little the saxophones, the piano. So he never played, but he had country musicians who toured. In those days, they named Vanjit, so they toured in station wagons. So they have, they have to fucking tie the doghouse bass onto the roof. So he's just said he put steroids on the Telecaster, uh, and just you know, scaled it up. Yeah. So so it could be like a fake stand-up. He had. Uh, uh, mute on the bridge and stuff to yeah. dampen the strings. So James Jamison, he's he's like thinking, no, you know what? This ain't a fake stand-up. I come from the stand-up. I've known it my whole life. But they can't record where shit. Yeah. In those days especially. No piezo, right? It's only microphone. They're getting, a lot of notes are getting lost. So he's using an uh, electric bass directly into the board. And so these things could be heard over the AM radio. And so if you could be heard, 
maybe you're going to write different parts. Maybe you're going to mm. use it different than those guys, you know. That's great, great stand up players. Uh, Paul Chambers, Jimmy Garrison, Ray Brown. See some big Mr. Ray Brown. I mean, these guys are incredible, but you can understand why the kick drum was only used for bombs. Yeah. Because, you know, there was that that was a Earl Palmer, you know, with little Richard when they weren't carrying a bass guy, he would he's the guy who did the steady kick on the floor. I mean, they, they used mm -hmm. it for bombs. They never the only thing that held time was a hi-hat or the ride. And they had because the, the bass players they had doing eighth notes. Yeah. Actually the piano and the guitar was in the rhythm section if you're talking yeah. swing band. So well what I'm saying is all this evolution and shit is because of what's coming out of the speakers. Like we're talking delivery system, right? How yeah. it's going to people's pad if you bring them the record or it comes over their uh, crap top or something. <laughs> How does it get to there? You know, what how, What goes into that? Some guy pushing the space bar? Yeah. Well, sometimes it does. <laughs> sometimes, you know, it takes ingenuity. It takes a, a James Jamerson. Uh, sometimes it takes a guy who doesn't know what the fuck he's doing to accidentally stumble on it. Beautiful. You know? but like John R uh, Coltrane said, music's a big reservoir, you know? Yeah. I met that Frank Kosky, that last interview he did, in a station wagon. He liked uh, Country Squires. What was that? I think and, he uh, played a... He says, he says to him, yeah, there's cassette on the internet of this thing. If you don't have it, I'll flow it to you. It's beautiful. But uh, he says... Uh, you know, some some Ra's accusing you of ripping him off. And John Coltrane says, you know, there might be something to that because I listened to John Gilmore, you know, his tenor player, John yeah. Gilmore. You know, music's a big reservoir. You know, he, that's something about him. That's why I start every show off with him. He said music, music people, musicians, they can tell when something's phony. Uh, real musicians are after some kind of truth, he said. And, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I like to look up to that <laughs> ethic, you know? It's beautifully said. Me and uh, my bass player, Cody, we're, uh, we've been going down a Coltrane rabbit hole for years. And then when we found your radio show and saw that it was riddled with Coltrane, we're like, oh, this is even cooler. And um, to kind of speak upon that, I was listening to, I think it was your, you did one with Ian McKay, and like you started off oh, with that interview. Last month. Just yeah, last yeah. Month, hey. And like I'm like, oh, this interview is so epic. It starts off with John Coltrane's last interview, and like, but every show starts with John Coltrane. I know, which is what makes it awesome. <laughs> and um, but look, <laughs> look, I found out about John Coltrane through Raymond Pettibone. Yeah, through the punk movement. Actually, I thought he was an older punk rocker. Yeah, I didn't know he was dead. Yeah, I grew huh. up maybe. I didn't know that shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then when I heard him, you know, Raymond played me uh, Sanchi. Whoa, and, that's a... It was wild. Let's start with like that a, one? Germ, it was like Germs gig. Yeah. Wow. And that was it? That Ascension got you into Coltrane? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, then he starts taking me to the gigs. I get to see Elvin Jones, you know, maybe 13, 14 times. Wow. And uh, I could see a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities, and a lot of differences, too, but... You know, that's what art's for. Yeah. It's so it's, like a, it's an interesting flannel, right? A lot of different threads to make up a big pattern. Mm. Is that why you rock the flannel? Well, well the story of that was uh, 
And I bet D-Bone, we were 12, right? Yeah. And the only rock band he had fucking heard of was Creedence. Good rock band. CCR. Yeah, yeah. I know, but only one. <laughs> if you had uh, one, well, that's well, solid. So his mom right away wants us to make a band. She wants me to play the bass. And, man, I cannot. Well, the fucking record. Fuck the body grab. So I only consider the first six. You know, Tom quit the band. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so D Boone ain't even. Well, he just quits the band. No, that's John with the the. the, That's a younger brother with the the boss of Fantasy Records. That's another. Oh, okay. But they are related. But it was Tom's band. Was the older brother's band. He only wrote one song for that man. And what's interesting about it? It's on the fucking first Richard Hell uh, album. They covered it, Walking on the Water. Oh uh, yeah. uh, Yeah. Richard Hell first punk rock hero i didn't know a bass player could lead a band <laughs> but anyway to get back to the flannel so here d boone's got these six records he ain't using the record cover you know they're on the hardwood deck and uh, yeah. the 30 dollar plastic record player with you got to put six quarters on on it to keep it from skipping you know these fucking <laughs> vinyl and all this shit and i so i can't hear what the bass is doing and i have no, not my ears aren't sensitive you know i don't even know what the fucking bass is i thought it was a guitar with four strings yeah because we were so far away you couldn't see one up close you know with depending on the record a, i didn't see a real bass till i was almost 16 up wow. close so i played a guitar for the first couple of years with four strings I thought they had skin in your necks. I didn't know that the word meant lower. <laughs> Baja, you know, Baja. Yeah. Low, low. So anyway, I'm looking at these album covers, and uh, I'm thinking, the singer has this, you know, Mark Bowen, he likes the boa. Yeah. And this guy, he likes his, because, again, Navy Housen, I don't know fucking farmers, lumberjacks, I don't know this <laughs> kind of outfit. So I think this is his rock and roll suit. And even on Willie, you no know, Cosmos, he's wearing leather pants and, you know, whatever. I yeah. just think that's his rock and roll. So I start, I thought, man, I can't figure out what this bass guy's doing. Stu Cook, I can't now. He wrote good parts, okay. But just at that age, I couldn't tell what the fuck was going on. Uh but maybe if I wear the singer shirts, D. Boone will still like me. <laughs> so that's how I got into flannel. The thing with, I don't know why punk, a certain part of the movement, liked flannel. Hmm. Except maybe they were econo. They were in a lot of thrift stores. Uh, they were rough. You could like fall, skaters, right? If you fall down in them. You could, could pin them up. You could patch them up. Yeah, Catch, um, I don't. I don't really know why that happened, but it really did, came with credence. Gotcha. That makes sense. <laughs> In a strange way. When you don't, when when that's all, when all you get is like a record's worth of images. You know what I mean? Like this is it. That makes he's so much on every sense. Record cover. He's on every record cover, and he's wearing those kind of shirts. <laughs> that's awesome, right? I I don't think there's one credence uh, record without. Him on the cover looking that way. The first album, okay, I think he might be wearing some like Union. Remember, like the band, you had to wear like Civil War clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they might, he might be doing that on the first one, but all the other records, he's got these plaid checkered shirts. And I'm thinking, you know, that's his rock and roll way. So I'll wear them. And maybe. 
and I'll button them up too because dude, in those days, remember we graduate Peter High '76. So if you wore a flannel at Peter High in the '70s, you did not button them up, and hmm. you wore a thing called a thermal underneath it, which was like yeah, thermal underwear. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of jersey. So the white sleeve part is hanging out because you roll up the sleeves and then you don't button it. <laughs> so it looks like a little layered look, little Annie Hall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I tell you, hot, like especially in California. So, well, you get a thinner one or something. Yeah, because a lot of this shit is fashion. Okay. Yeah. And the seventies people were very narcissists. They were really about themselves. We didn't listen to any older music. You know, kids nowadays are like Black Sabbath, a fifty-year-old band. Yeah. There's none of that shit going on. Nobody's just listen to Charlie Patton, <laughs> Rudy Valley. <laughs> it's just a whole different. Kids, younger people are way more open-minded these days. And they're not so concerned, I think, about fashion. Not so much. A little bit. Yeah. A little tight pants around the ankle, leotard things. Yeah. And because uh, in my day, it was bell bottoms, right? But I grew right. up Navy housing. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's daddy's a sailor. I'm saying I've already seen my share of bell bottoms. <laughs> but then, uh, actually, I, I still wear what I wore then, Levi's. So they they weren't tight or bell. We were just straight down. They lasted a long time. They were thick. Econo. I think. Yeah. Yeah, they were kind of. Yeah, with the Minutemen, that wasn't just a slogan. <laughs> yeah. No, that was <laughs> way of life. <laughs> Even? But there was a factory up in the city, uh, the Strauss brothers, Levi Strauss. Yeah. Uh, they they turned into a pants thing. Huh. Yeah, they thought this, you know, denim, rough, it worked good for work pants. And I got into them. And she, I'd get a pair for my sister and my ma every year because my birthday is only five days from Christmas. So I got like 20 pairs. And you know how it's weird for guys. Yeah. Their waist stayed the same, even though they might get a fucking bell or gut going, you know. So you can wear the same fucking pants for years. They're good. <laughs> so I got like 20 pairs I've never even worn yet. I'm just fucking up sitting in a closet. When you're, when you're doing as many, like, when stuff opens up and you're hitting the road again like you normally do, you just get new pants, new <laughs> new pair for every town. No, I wait till they wore up. Yeah. Why? Why? Why use it up? My ma's gone now, so but my sister's still here, so I'll still probably go on a year. But I that word normal scares me. You think you're talking about when things get healthier? Yeah. Okay. Because normal, you know, what's normal for 1933 Germany? Everyone's I that word. Maybe it's from being a younger punk rocker, but whenever I heard that word normal, now I like healthy. I like compassion. You know, decent uh, people treating each other nice. But that isn't always normal. Sometimes it's normal to be asshole. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. And so I don't, you know, I don't get into that word. It just is average of what the ha is happening, right? Yeah. 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 I think it's too. It can be manipulated. Look, all kinds of words can be manipulated. Jesus Christ. And <laughs> and talk, we'll talk about the lion. But even if you're not lying, you still can twist and bend up shit. So that's what maybe why the. It's it's not even thinking, Dave. Yeah. It's like just gut reaction. I I love how you interpret this stuff. Like, Accessibility options. 
Uh, um, Go ahead. Sorry. But um, kind of the jump back for a second, going to what we were talking about before, like the idea of like innovation, right? It kind of made me think about like when each movement of art, like when you have the classical era, the romantic era, the fill in the blanket, with music and art, it got more and more expressionist, right? There's more like going from like... um, Gregorian chants, we had thirds, and that's dissonant, right? And so on and so forth. But I think Gregorian is even before that. I think what started out, you're talking church music, right? And yeah, European, yeah. European. Okay. Yeah, all the shit got lost, right? So I think at first it's only octaves. Yeah. And so the first thing is... Unison. First, uh, yeah. But then the first harmonies were actually fifths. Yeah. Because they didn't really know where the third was. And for example... We got this music called the blues, right? Because part of our country is made of people from Africa, and they heard yeah. the third different. Now in the Europe, they oh that flatted third—that's a minor, right? But you know they didn't have that kind of way of talking and stuff about music. But they had music, and they were hearing things certain ways. And of course, they're living with people that are from Europe, so it mixes together. And so we give the European people and the African people this music that's. Both of them really didn't have, uh, what would we call it, uh, rock and jazz. Yeah. Right? Mixtures of both those people's musics. But they weren't living in the same land. Okay. So uh, in the European tradition, I think it was actually uh, Johann Sebastian Bach who found where the third was. And he used Isaac Newton's math. The ratios. You know, yeah, there's ways using nature and resonances and where it should go. But, you know, that's all up to debate, too, especially yeah. nowadays with microtones and stuff. But oh, where, yeah. where we got the, 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 the 12 intervals, you know, it came up with that. But the third was really tricky. You didn't know really where it was. So if you look at, like, you're a guitar man. Yeah. So if you look at a lute from the Middle Ages, there the frets are actually pieces of gut tight around you could move them around yeah. you put them wherever you wanted to yeah that's the idea of temperament right in the temper uh, yeah now that that even goes between the machines yeah that's why they're that saxophones and symphonies because the temper yeah and lamont young he's got some proj going on manhattan called the dream house i yeah. went to it in a few hours yes yeah, so he it's like an eight-year piece or some shit more than that maybe it's these it's just blasting these chords, but these chords supposedly are in this tuning that is well tempered, kind of correct across yeah, the yeah. board. But you know, think about sound. Sound just isn't from the instrument. Sound is played, and then wherever it's being played, is there's interaction. That, yeah, it's the it's the air, the moving the air. Yeah, and the surfaces it's bouncing off and being absorbed by and reflected. And so it gets, yeah, you can start counting angels on the head. (laughs) You know, but uh, look, if it moves you, makes you laugh, makes you cry, makes you want to dance. Actually, I think dancing is probably using the first instrument, which was the drums, which is the bobs of our feet. Yeah. I think it's fucking got worth. Definitely. It's got worth. There's something about repetition. There's something about improvisation. There's something about harmony. It, it, it all goes together. And, and it's, it's, 
some of this shit you don't even have to be uh, creator, inventor about. Yeah. For example, like a novel. You can in, not invent one new word and still write a very original novel in English. Not invent one word. In fact, if you start inventing words, you know, like Finnegan's Wake, it gets a little hard to read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> start to lose some of the audience there. This this is what but, keeps it a moving, dynamic thing. Yeah. And why it doesn't get nailed down and gets reinterpreted, like we were saying about Mr. Whitman stuff. It gets reinvented, those ethics. They're, they're not just in a glass box at some shrine, you know, and everybody just looks down at the dude. It's 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 something, it's, it, it's sort of like the pocket knife where the art in the pocket knife isn't the knife itself. It's what's going to be carved with it. Yeah. That's the way I look at all this kind of technique and theory uh, about music. That's a, I think that's an excellent way to look at it. I think um, uh, there's a quote from Victor Wooten, which uh, it's only Great. theory, not yeah. fact, which always resonated with me. Yeah. Well, he said, uh, but, you know, you got to watch out there. That's the, uh, there's a pitfall there because he, it sounds like he's trying to state a fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By not stating a fact, you're stating a fact. It's true. Right. Like, it is true. Because like, I can see. Everything is a lie. <laughs> yeah. What we call those things, paradoxes. Right? Yeah, I think in the context of how he was saying it. No, it I know what he yeah. means, and that guy's a great bass man. Where is he now, Nashville? I think so, yeah. Yeah, he's great, great bass man and stuff, and uh, a little busy, but so what? <laughs> he, yeah. can make that, he makes that instrument live, makes yeah. it breathe. He had this band, uh, he was in that banjo guy's band. Bella Fleck? Bella, Bella, yeah. yeah. And maybe not the... But man, great musicians, great musicians, incredible cats. Definitely. Uh, and, re and really, really dedicated to their craft. Oh, yeah. Discipline, you know, it's, it's really admirable. And, and, and also just hearing from them guys, not snobs. Yeah. Cool dudes. Like that. Because some humans, because you, you, you gain some skills, all of a sudden you're better than everybody on the fucking planet. <laughs> yeah. And it's, that's such a disappointment. <laughs> that is. People Here's here, Dave. We're talking about John Coltrane. Motherfuckers will use giant steps to cut each other. Yeah, I mean, you look at a picture of him. Look at his eyes. They're open. They're compassionate. He don't want his music to be used to bully other people. Definitely not. I mean, there's a story about Tommy Flanagan, right? The piano man, right? Yeah. John just giving him a ch chart. Here, it's just some chords <laughs> for uh, for giant steps, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you he was all. And stumbly, and he, took, he said it took him 13 years to get a real solo, but I think it's okay and shit. But I'm what a challenge! But that's the way John Coltrane was. It was just, of course, that guy practiced all you, know, you used to practice after gigs. I love that uh, when he puts that chart in front of him and he's playing playing through on the piano and he's trying to like catch up for that first, like, or I can't remember the take that's on the record. You can hear him trying to figure it out. But be that guy and yeah. figuring out those changes. But he said even the one that's on, that's on the record, he was still trying to figure because he had just given him the chords. Yeah. Oh man, those you know, guys. And are... so uh, and and John had probably been practicing it like up the yang. So to him, it was yeah nothing. It was, that's, <laughs> he came ready for it. But you know, yeah, I just the, learned. The same thing I I got a interview with uh, heard an interview with Alice who's this. Wife? Second wife, and yeah. she said, <clears throat> and Naima's the first one, right? So 
she said he never fired anyone. They hmm. just knew when to leave the band. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So in interesting guy, you know, only only 40 years. Yeah. Same as uh, Franz Kafka, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Not a long time. But man, did they pack in some stuff. Nick Franz Kafka, not so much. And he wanted everything burned, but... Uh, Look, his buddy didn't. Yeah, didn't live up to it. Does it all? Read, read that. Yeah, uh, we wouldn't saw her uh, read the trial or the castle or America. Right, he only wanted the shit that was published to survive. But but anyway, I'm getting off topic here. What, what I'm trying to say is, uh, some people I think have the idea of the music as a launch pad. Yeah. Uh, as a uh, or even all the stuff that is led up to music in their life when they get together with somebody else. It's a springboard. It's just something to start something. And then other people say, no, this is a fucking stick to hit someone with. Yeah. And John Put Coltrane was up the other side from the springboard, the launch pad side. Well, definitely. Like with your the quote with the reservoir and, and how deep it is and just to go deeper with it and try to... With a guy like that who's like music is... For as technical as jazz can be, to find this like immense spirituality in what he did and going from like... The guy shed in on the standards to a love supreme, you know what I mean? Like it's there's nothing. It, he has a record called a love supreme. He's not trying to put anyone down. <laughs> like, no, that's a prayer. Yeah, uh, to say thank you for getting off the shit, right? Yeah, he actually spells it out with the sax playing. He's, yeah, and the last uh, the spells out the prayer. Yeah, the I think it's nineteen phrases or something. Well, he sings, the, him and the band sing, but he's spelling it out with the uh, saxophone. Yeah, with the uh, phrasing of it. Look, I think the whole movement wanted something else. They had been doing bebop for, you know, more than 10 years, right? And, and yeah. it, that kind of played itself out, all these chord changes. And look at Miles. He, he when, when, when uh, Train comes back to play with him and... Uh, uh, a kind of blue. Yeah. He goes in this modal thing. Uh, n n n hardly any chord changes. Yeah, two maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, uh, you know, musicians uh, or creative people they get restless and they don't want to maybe do. I love Lucy reruns forever. Yeah, you know, and I think this is one of the things that got him into prac so much. Man, it was like a fucking onion you know I, there's this documentary on him with they're talking to rashid ali his last drummer yeah yeah at the airport he pulled out a flute i mean guy practiced so much but he was already so good i don't think that was the point about being good enough it was probably he chased down one kind of thing and that would open up possibilities and he'd have to chase them down you know it was like peeling an onion wow that's a good analogy for it you know what i mean yeah yeah definitely because i think his mind you know what I mean? It didn't it, it was like, now it's done. It's no, no. Not, now because I did this, maybe I can do that. Yeah. Because he was always talking about in the spiels that he had ideas that he was still working on. He's always talking about that. Trying to get stuff out of his mind into the music. It's well, that, struggle. That, yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. Get, like with, I think it was a, of Love Supreme, he locked himself up while he was getting clean and did work on that. Well, well, no. Right? No, 65, he... he okay. Dick Sills, he wrote Love Spreeman. He gets clean in 57, the year okay. I was born. Okay. And in Philly. 
that was Dix Hills in uh, Long Island. And this is Philly up that Patty got with his GI Bill on 33rd Street. And his cousin Mary lived there and stuff. And he locked himself upstairs, you're right, for two weeks, cold turkey. Yeah. Now, what happened was uh, he was playing with Miles, you know, in the quintet, and uh, I think nodding out, maybe even picking his nose. I don't know. It's in uh, the Quincy <laughs> Troop book with Miles, and because you can't trust Miles, wrote all kind or told Quincy Troop all kinds of shit. But he's backstage, uh, Thelonious Monk's there, and, and, and Miles socks hmm. John Coltrane in the gut. And then uh, Thelonious Monk says, Miles, you shouldn't have done that. And he says, John, you can come play with me. And for nine months, he went and played with Thelonious Monk, did some record. Did, uh, there's a famous Carnegie Hall thing they got. Yeah, out. that record's great. Yeah, right, right. And then he goes back, you know, but it was uh, before he went to with Thelonious Monk, he cleaned up. That's when it was. And I, oh, there's a, okay. and if okay. you go on my page, there's an interview with Augusta Bloom in 1958. Just now, he says quit drinking. He don't talk about dope and shit because you yeah. know, you know, and all that. But he talks about that when he got healthy, and uh, he doesn't talk a lot about it because he didn't. I don't think want to glorify it or like try to put himself above people. Yeah, you know, like oh, I can get clean and these because you know the big thing, man. This is what Richard Meltzer told me. Well, you know, it was Bird, right? Charlie Parker was an amazing cat, but really fucked up guy. Yeah. So everybody thought he had to be all fucked up. Now, Diz didn't do this, but most of the other guys, especially younger guys. And John Coltrane, by quitting, what Richard called it was kick dope out of the temple. You could actually get big, better. You didn't have to be all fucked up out of your head. And uh, that was important to the movement, that, that movement, uh, Bebop. But John Coltrane, I mean, uh, Richard Meltzer told me what, what John Coltrane did, but he didn't want to use that as somehow uh, some kind of uh, platform or catap capital, yeah, uh, you know, something to trade on. Yeah, he always wanted to keep things down to music, what is getting played, what is getting expressed, and and so if you try to like say you, you know, you, you put up these other kind of issues, you're never going to get to the core of that thing he thought was important when music people got together with the actual expression of the music not i'm better because i kicked the shit and you didn't yeah so he doesn't really talk about that a lot but on on the he did a talk with himself i know dug it because that is a love supreme yeah. that is his him giving thanks for that uh seven years before because he's only clean right his last 10 years well you know uh Vincent only painted his last 10 years. You know, some some things, you're not a child prodigy. <laughs> yeah, no. It, you know, like Orson Welles, right? We'll sell no wine before it's time. I think I think it's important that that's a thing, that people don't realize that, or people do realize it's not just you do it and you're great at it. There's countless failures and nothing but getting beat up. Oh, like, Joe Biza, uh, 27 years old when he started guitar, the Sacred Trust guitars. Yeah. Twenty-seven. Wow, that's you know that's late in the game for a lot that of people. Was, yeah, but that was one of the great things. Alan Vega, right? He was an artist. He saw Stooges. I want to yeah, yeah. say started suicide. That was one of the greatest things about the movement was people were motivated to try to express themselves with music, and that's a lesson that gets lost. Yeah, uh, because you know a big part of it was that reaction against arena rock, but another part of it was mobilizing people that maybe. 
you know, didn't have piano lessons as a five-year-old. Or maybe they didn't even have music at their school, didn't have a music program. Because, you know, they don't think it's important or whatever. Yeah. You notice I asked that on my show. I always ask him if they took music at school. Fleet told me that's why he started his conservatory of music in Silver Lake, because he went back to Fairfax where he did trumpet, you know. Yeah. And there was no more program. He does that benefit every year, right? Well, for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and started it. But, like, it is important. It is important to be exposed to this and, like, have the chance. Again, you know, because everybody doesn't have that ideal situation. So maybe yeah. you do expose later on. That's still okay. One of the things that the movement said to me, you can be an older cat, and if you want to do it, do it to it. You know, look at Vincent. I mean, he sketched and shit, but he never painted till his last 10 years. He only sold one. He didn't even sell that one, really, his lifetime. So it's strange about art and humans. Yeah. It really is, the connection. And I think John Coltrane was trying to, you know, keep things focused that way. Uh, I got a lot of interviews by him where you actually hear his voice. And I think that's important. There's this weird documentary. And I love Denzel Washington. He's an incredible, beautiful man, an incredible actor. Oh, Chasing Train. Yeah, but yeah. But to have him talk, because I've heard his voice. And Denzel, of course, he don't even try to talk like John Coltrane. But that would be even cornier, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, what did you think of that, Doc? I thought it was a... I thought, what I liked about it, my favorite part, I didn't know about that home stuff that he shot of Robbie of his kids. Yeah. The Super 8. Yeah, I had never seen that. Yeah, that, those tapes. There was some some cool stuff in it. I thought they uh, they kind of breezed through it pretty quick. Just anything, you know. I really like the yeah, like Ken Burns kind of. Yeah, even though yeah. that Ken the jazz doc, the Ken Burns one, the ten hour one, that one's great. And yeah, however, no Mingus, no Charlie Mingus. No Mingus. I thought Mingus was in it. Maybe I have to watch no, it. Again. No, no, no. Marcellus, you know. Yeah. A lot of Louis Armstrong, and he who's great. He's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And he did a lot of changes, but he is not all jazz. Yeah, yeah, they definitely focused around him in that one. Because there's Whitten, you know, and I think Whitten has disagreements with, you know, his brother. I once, uh, I saw DeFeo, the youngest. Yeah. Doing, uh, uh, first time I saw him play was with Max Roach. I like wow. I like that idea. Yeah, mentorship. They the yeah. older guy, yeah, would play with the younger guys. Art Blakey did buttloads of that. And I saw Rob play with Max Roach. First time I saw Ravi Coltrane. Wow. He was playing with Max Roach. Yeah, Raymond would take me all this uh, a place called uh, Catalina up in Hollywood on Coanga. Yeah, I'd see all these guys. Yeah, you'd sit in a table away. Billy Higgins, look at you. That's, the whole game was your fucking gig. That's so cool. <laughs> it really was, you know. Yeah. It, 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 was and just playing for the love of it you know but it was different different times you know yeah 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 he couldn't stay there he had to end up moving you know he ended up in uh nagasaki actually that's why we see him a lot because that first gig yeah would be yeah when he'd fly over here okay cool i did go, kind of going back to that coltrane doc. jazz machine i think that's what his name of his band the jazz machine jazz machine yeah uh but going back to the coltrane doc i like when they talked about his time in japan that well, I that's did. the last tour. That's yeah, the last yeah. tour. And it was really heavy cool. about that tour. He's not just doing the gigs during the daytime. He's they didn't really talk about this that much. He's jamming, doing jam sessions with the, the musicians over there. 
he knew he was only had a little time. He didn't tell anybody, but uh, people talked about it. Elvin says he remembers the last gigs he did with him, him holding his side. And, you know, he walks into a yeah. mercy room, just passes away short time. So he was trying to pack in as much as possible. In fact, I met a guy, Kira Sakata, sax man. Yeah. He went to the Hiroshima gig. Wow. He had his record. One of his John Coltrane records, he wanted to sign it. Yeah, our Coltrane had just played what two, three hours, you know. And sure enough, he's got a towel wrapped around his head and he's practicing backstage. <laughs> and this is a man who's only got a year left to live, you know. Yeah, it's it's the the never ending search for the expression is endlessly inspiring and like it totally is, it totally is. Um, it really is. Is that and kind that's of why, that's why I play him? Every show. That's a beautiful reason to play them. And the music's just, every time you hear it, there's something new in it. Like, there, you can listen to Blue Train for years and still hear new stuff in it. Like, yeah, he's playing he's playing chord changes where there's not chord changes. Or his pentatonic riffs. I talked about something like that in the Augusta Blue spiel. Yeah. I told you like, it's an hour. It's at, at, not at his house. It's Augusta's house. You can hear the... Dishes being washed and shit. Because <laughs> awesome. remember, this is right after a, a Thelonious Monk nine months. Yeah. So uh, Augustus is asking him questions about this uh, experience. And he's saying, you know, we would play a song in a minor and no one had ever hit the third. Huh. Yeah, it was all the intent, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what like the the bebop, uh, what do they they call it the chromatic uh, enclosures do. They like enclose the third or the key note, and everyone's dodging the third. That's that's hip. But you're <laughs> acting like it, right? Yeah, you, yeah. You, it's the frame of the mind. And more than that, not just the mind, but it's an ensemble. So the minds. Remember, this isn't one guy trying yeah. to figure out a big symphony. These are guys coming together as a little ensemble to do. Aid and abet the music with a group, you know, yeah, gung yeah. ho. The gung ho, a spirit, right? Man. Okay, you might have a rudder man, you might have a keel man, bow man. It's still one boat. Yeah. So the way you connect, the way you communicate, intense, uh, yeah, uh, intention can be yeah, nine tenths of the law. Stuff like that. And, uh, you know, people, yeah, of course, there's sticks and stuff and sure. cliches and things. You can, you know, little life preservers, I guess, if you start going under and stuff. But really what you're doing is trying to make real, you know, make an interesting conversation. That's yeah. what I, if you do if you, more than one guy is playing. Otherwise, it's a monologue. For, yeah, if not, it's just, you know, nothing sticks out. It's well, it that. might, but just a different thing. It's a soliloquy, you know. It's, it's, it's not an ensemble. An gotcha. ensemble is a weird kind of communication trip. And the way you do it, you know, I guess you can see the puppet strings. And, you know, I remember if Georgie saw somebody picking their ass, he'd say, "Hand puppet." <laughs> so maybe that's a one man. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of cool, though. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> So you just put out, I think it was in October, the electric version of A Love Supreme, or A Love Supreme Electric. 
And was it wasn't I, you? It was you yeah. and an ensemble kind of going off the ensemble. No, Henry, Henry, Henry Kaiser got that thing together. Yeah, that's amazing. And what it is? What it is? John Coltrane actually wrote two big pieces. Yeah, and actually one of those he did two versions of. Everybody knows the Love Supreme. Yeah, but he did another one called Meditations, which before and after. There's a big band one, a little band, and one had more movements than the other ones. So Henry Kaiser wanted to kind of do, now he had done this with Miles Davis music with Nels Klein. I think it's called Yo Miles, where yeah. you bring in uh, rock band guys to try to reinterpret these works. Yeah. And uh, so he kind of did this with uh, Wayne Pete, uh, was on the Oregon video, uh, Go uh, Golia was on the Reeds, and John Hanram on the uh, drums, who actually had already been doing gigs where he did this piece and stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, huh. I, I should say his, his name, uh, John, John it's, it's, it's Irish, right? So, Haranahan. Hanrahan. It's Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Okay, so so Henry already had like a connect with him, right? Because Henry's up in Cruz, Santa Cruz, and then in the city of John Hanrahan, or Pacifica. But anyway, they're very close. And so they had been working together and stuff, and so they were kind of the core. And then Wayne Pete is down here in SoCal, not Pedro, but not far away, kind of uh, uh, near Venice or Santa Monica, like Palms, yeah. Marvis, this area. Yeah, it's hard. You know, SoCal's 150 towns. <laughs> it's like if the gap between you and Akron gets filled up, which it probably yeah. will. Yeah. And so, you know what I mean? It's a metro area. Yeah, yeah. We're saying Pontiac and Detroit. Yeah, they used to be different, but it's all one. And then uh, in Vinny, uh, Vinny, I think, is Eagle Rock, so like by Pasadena. So us three are down there, them two up there. They come down, and we record the thing. And then do a gig at that uh, McCabe's Guitar Shop in Santa Monica. So that's the whole thing. Wow. I mean, there's no hardly any, there's no practice for it except for yeah. the gig and the recording. And Wayne Pete, we did at his, his studio at his pad. And he ends up mixing it and do uh, that, that stuff. So it's all self-contained thing. But I, I was really afraid to be part of it because, you know, that music is really... But I'm thinking, you know, John Coltrane, there's no fucking way he would want us to do a top 40 cover of it, you know? Yeah. Some, like, note-for-note note thing. And like I said, I basically, so there's something, now he didn't tell me this, you know. I was only 10 when he died, right? But and didn't even know of him. But I got a feeling that his he thought his music was launch pad shit. So it wasn't done deal stuff. Yeah. And so maybe. You know, his last tour, he, he talked about his last tour. He was going to do another tour, try to, where he brought no band. And he wanted to play with spiritual guys that would, like, kind of be his teacher. Whoa. You know, yeah, yeah, Whoa, yeah. Can you that would, yeah. That, that kind of humility, playing like that, and say, I got shit still to learn. Yeah. Okay, so that's the way that I reconciled it with myself, that I would do this. And I told Henry, yes, okay, I'll be part of it. And, uh... I used the little bass, which I hardly ever record with. I play with, I record with bigger basses, but I used the littler one just to, because uh, he said he liked it. And so th uh, it was all about the ensemble and, you know, the, the, yeah. whatever, 
the, the floor boss, <laughs> Henry Kaiser. He, he, okay, you run this because I, I got to tell you, I'm a little nervous and insecure about this whole fucking. Oh, what? Well, don't worry. The, you know, Wayne Pete's got all the cores in the voice, and he'll do the heavy lifting. And I'm thinking, Henry, an ensemble, you know, everybody's doing heavy <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. You're stri- it's like having the, you know, big daddy Don Garlitz with the big Hemi. You don't put a Volkswagen tranny to get the power to the wheels. <laughs> it, it's just you know like, what I mean? Yeah, it's like You're we were saying before. You're as strong as that weakest link. Definitely. So, okay, okay. But, but I'll do, you know, I'll go ahead on this because I really believe in a way it is part of a John Colton. Not, not to use it to justify anything, especially me blowing clams and shit. But <laughs> They don't pay for the clams. <laughs> Those are free. Shit, Jim Brown, I think it was five bucks a clam at the gig. <laughs> Catfish, Bootsy's brother, that was part of his rhythm guitar was only one of the jobs. Yeah. Right? One, to keep track of the clams. Jim would like point at the dude and then point at Catfish and hold up five fingers. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so you wanted to play tight, right? So... I'm not using this as trying to, you know, do some bondo or fake bandage over my clams and shit, but I think Mr. Coltrane would like it that we didn't just try to copy it like a Xerox or a cookie cutter rubber stamp shit, and that we did try to make a interpretation of it. And, and I just feel very obligated to him for writing such beautiful music for us to, and, you know, hopefully not pissing shit and puke yeah. all over. Oh yeah, yeah. See, you Far know what from. I mean. Far from this, this shit is not about that. You know, it's 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 in a way. It's like me uh, when it, with Perk and Peter when I do the Hell Ride and and we reinterpret uh, Stooges. Yeah. You know, Stooges is incredible music for you to find your own self, even though it's their music and they wrote those songs. It's open enough. That you can, you know what I mean? It's just beautiful that way. And maybe uh, on, on some kind of level, of, especially for somebody like me, that John Coltrane could be like that. And so I, I, I'm grateful for Henry for setting that up. At first I was like, God damn, you know, you're making me walk the plank here. You know, but then it was like, maybe I should, you know, put on some big boy pants, <laughs> you know, and, and, and try it. And just try it. And man, I shit a fucking... It was a pant shitter at that gig, man, and I died and up little boy deaths and cried and shit a pecan log. I mean, the whole fucking dealio. And then the next day, and the recording, and so nervous. And but I'm still glad we did it. Still, uh, I listened to the final mix, but I haven't listened. Still afraid, a little scared. (laughs) Well, Well, as a as a fan of Coltrane and of your work. It rocks, <laughs> to say the least. I was like, that's the perfect Watt project to to stumble upon, is you doing a Love Supreme, especially because your music and Coltrane's music has resonated so deeply with me and my bass player and the people around me. And, like, that was, like, the coolest thing that I could have found. And, like, you I, you guys did a beautiful job of, like you said, yeah, not, not copying... You know, Pretended lit shit like that, but also Wayne Pete, Vinnie Goli, and uh, John Hammerman. Oh, the whole, yeah. The whole ensemble is great. Yeah, yeah, because those guys all really love John Coltrane. That's what I could tell. It was insisted. You know what I brought to the recording session? Do you know about this book, The Reference? The Reference? No. 
Yeah, yeah, I bought this. It was a Christmas present for myself a few years ago because it cost a hundred and seventy-five fucking dollars. What? You know, but it's every gig that John Coltrane did. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and uh, and recording session, and I brought you know it's this big fucking thick book. Lewis Porter, the guy, one of the guys who did the bio, one of the guy authors also did. He he teaches music at Rutgers and. Uh, great music writer and stuff, and he's part of the crew that John Coltrane reference. Okay, here it is. Chris DeVito's one of the authors, uh, but uh, Lewis Porter, he's the guy who wrote, uh, did the, the bio on him. Probably, I mean, there's a few bios on John, John Coltrane, but he wrote one of the best. Uh, here, I'll put it in the chat thing here. Okay, cool. Right oh, there. Oh, man. I'm, perfect. See, the John Coltrane, yeah, I yeah. bring the thing to the, the recording thing now this thing's like four inches thick <laughs> you know it's like what they call it, atlas yeah but like butt loads more pages but it's that size but way thicker because like i said they got all his gigs and all his and they got little ads that were in papers Whoa. That's... you know you could, for shit when he went from alto to tenor he clean had uh, uh, vincent got a switch all, all the all this kind of shit so I bring that, and uh, I could tell uh, those guys were foaming, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that it wasn't like just, ah, look what I got, look what you don't got. Yeah. I was at that, I just wanted them to trip on it. And I didn't even know if they knew it was aware of it, and actually they weren't. They weren't really aware of it. I don't know if people really talk about this book, the John Coltrane reference, but man, I recommend, if you're into John Coltrane, Get this book. I got a teacher's got salary, and I'm <laughs> I'm gonna be going know, broke this summer, this um, <laughs> Christmas. But maybe they got it used and shit nowadays. Yeah. I got it right when it came out because I couldn't awesome. believe. You know, in those days, that's one good thing about these days. Things was more documented. Those days, a lot of shit got lost. Yeah. You know, and so if you're into them, but I could tell at the session, man, and it wasn't like we put it on a shrine and prayed to it while we were playing or anything, but uh, it was just something. A shared thing. Yeah. Uh, well, that's like a, that's like coming in the class with like I got issue one of the Ninja Turtle. You know what I mean? Like, no way. Everyone's you you show it to the right people. Everyone's gonna get hyped about it. And like, that's a cool thing to share. Like, if anyone would have appreciated that book, it would have been the people in that the, ensemble. Well, the, the, the idea of the book there, Dave, was like. You know, I don't want to piss all over this guy's music. I really care about this guy's yeah. music. I'm not using it as a chew toy to look, make myself look important. Yeah, yeah, no, not that's. And I, I wanted to show them guys that in a way, and they, you know, they're good guys and stuff. So I was probably, you know, gilding the lily, but I just, just by showing them that it was like, you know, I spent some time with this guy. <laughs> I didn't as a kid. I didn't know about him, but once I did, once Raymond turned me on. Uh, I, I really, you know how something that's really exotic, it's foreign because you don't, yeah. you don't know it. And so you really dive into it. But the thing about it, what it isn't exotic, it is music. So, okay, John Fogarty, John Coltrane, still doing music. So yeah. why shouldn't there be connects there? See, this shit about genre is terrible. Oh, definitely. And that's... It's saying that music ain't music, that there's special kinds of devices to trick people into buying things yeah 
And that's uh, kind of going back the Spotify thing. I think they harp on that. When you try to put your stuff up there, you have to label it. And like, it it does just that. It takes this beauty that everything can be melded together. Like, can I tell you a, fu- a funny story in the old days about the movement? Yeah. When you and when there used to be chain stores, record stores, right? Like yeah. Tower Records and uh, Warehouse, Licorice Pizza. Okay. Our shit, right? SST, punk records. Yep. Made here, always in the import bin. <laughs> huh. But it was made. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Imported from down the street. From from because <laughs> of course all punk comes from London, even though you know Richard L. invented the clothes. Yeah, and yeah. The moment, you know. That okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. It, it, just bizarre. It's somebody yeah. else's idea of what should be kind of whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just bullshit. <sighs> You know, yeah. it's like at the end of the Wizard of, well, not the very end, but near the end of the Oz part where he's going, oh, you know, this is called a diploma. You know, this is called a badge. If you got courage, they give you, you know, all this shit that's supposed to be. What do you mean supposed to be? Some motherfucker decided and then just because he had the power made it be. Yeah. But if you kept it, you know, what it is, is music and then let the listener decide. Maybe it'd be a little more freedom. Yeah, I wonder. Maybe that word is overused big time. Definitely. definitely. But but if you want, in a pure sense, let people let the expressions speak for themselves. Artistic expressions. Yeah, yeah. I want. They'd find like I don't know. I don't know. That would be the beauty of it. That'd be the beauty of it. If they was just like, I'm looking for this. You know, over there. It's not categorized. Well, it's maybe iPod. alphabetized. I got this machine that Apple used to make called the iPod. Yeah. And you're on the boat on tour, right? Driving. The greatest mode is what? Shuffle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't know what the fuck is coming up next. Yeah, that's it. But no, you do know what's coming up. It's music. <laughs> that's all you know about it. Yeah. Um, the funny thing, I got to tell you, this is our own movement, right? Maximum Rock and Roll, Tim Yohannan, a great guy. I liked him a lot. Yeah. Cancer got too young and- but they started putting these genres, you know, power violence, thrust. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how is that different? Even hardcore was strange. Yeah. Now, hardcore, I think Ian came up with for his uh, Discord re- label because it, it's in D.C. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it. Uh, D- D- District of Columbia, right? Hardcore. You know. It's there. It's kind of. The- you know, it's Discord. Uh, I think only one band ain't from D.C. Was it? Was all that, uh, that well, just even wanted to make it like a local label, right? Yeah, yeah. But but you know, what happened was, yeah. What what power violence? Come on, <laughs> power violence. And, and, but this fucking happened with. Uh, I remember when I was helping. First time I was helping out a band, like with a tour was Porno for Pyros, and it was in the nineties, the middle of the nineties, and this stuff about electronic music and. Chill wave and yeah, I, I, trip trip hop and I, I asked a pair about this. What you know? Where do they get these names? And he goes, Mike, it's all in the beats per minute. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Just just yeah. weird ways of uh, separating shit. It, in a way, I don't want to sound really fucking stupid, but it's kind of a, a racism. Uh, you know, judging people by these weird. There are differences in musics. Yeah, for sure. But like people with freckles, people with the blue eyes, people with the brown skin, people with the white skin, 
black skin, people with mixed skin. <laughs> you know, after a while, wouldn't you just want to talk with the dude and not worry about that fucking, you know, if it's okay, if the right skins are talking. <laughs> it's just, can't you see it being kind of a echo of the same kind of unreasoning? Yeah. It's, it's, it's grouping stuff together. Okay. Maybe the stuff I like and stuff I don't like. What have you grouped it that way? <laughs> I can't but agree. then I change your mind. Stuff that yeah. you like, you don't like. You know, man, Bay City Rollers, they, they just don't get it anymore. But man, I got into the Dan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? For so even that line is blurry, right? They're all blurry. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. The, the, there's this Bruce Lee quote where it's like, I can't remember what he lists before, but it comes down to being like, I'm just a human being, and like, yeah, yeah. Music... I, 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 I just use that as an example now. Okay? No, yeah, yeah. That problem. No, you know, I, I grew know, 100%, up 100%. One good thing about the Navy housing was because it was in the 60s. I grew up with all kinds of people. Uh, I, no, I got to say we were separated between enlisted men and officers. I didn't know any officers, guys. Yeah. But on the ethnic thing, and I thought, you know, when you're a kid, you think the whole world's that way. I thought all Samaritans were millionaires. They had their own houses. But then when I found out they all lived in their own areas, that was so strange for me. It was kind of like enlisted men officers. <laughs> White hats, you know. But anyway, I just used that for an example because it, that's pretty obvious, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great example. For it's it. not that in music. And all of a sudden, you know, the hard rock, even... even even hard rock or rock, rock and roll, right? There's the hard rock, there's the heavy rock, there's the metal rock. There's a soft there's rock. Hot rock. <laughs> <laughs> it's endless. It's and it's all categorizing for no reason. Like one band can. No, fit. no, no. I think there is a reason. Well, yeah. Go back marketing uh -huh. and marketing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they want a shortcut. Yeah. They want you to like that shit before you even listen. Yeah. It's the same mentality that dudes that sell socks use. Yeah. And they might as well be selling socks. <laughs> I play in a wool band. Uh, <laughs> Acrylic. <laughs> tube. Um, yeah. I think the tubes were a band, but. um, They but were. Yeah. Arizona. <laughs> they were cool, man. Um, you know what their first name was? I can't remember what their first name was. Um, the Beans. The what? The Beans. The Beans? <laughs> you know, awesome. the yeah. <laughs> Fry Joel's. <laughs> The kind of um, shift gears in a way, um, when you uh, are kind of on the mindset of like when John Coltrane was in Japan, did that inspire you to record your third opera in Japan? Or was that... I recorded in New York City. Okay, and then it was put out in a label then. The first release was. Got yeah. you, okay. Cause and then the first tour was in Japan. I did 22 gigs in 22 days, 2010. And was that your first tour in Japan? Like, well, as Mike Watt, the missing man. Gotcha. But I first toured with Jay Maskus in the fog there. Oh, and then okay. I did uh, uh, with Stooges, I toured there. Okay. Okay. And then Brother, Sister, Daughter with Sam Bennett. And then I brought, the, uh, I was invited to bring the missing man over. And I thought it was a great place to premiere the uh, first opera, which was fucking hard. It, there's 30 parts, and each part has like five parts. You know how much shit yeah. you had to remember? 
I it blowed blue. My, my first time I saw you play was in 2011 <clears throat> at the Grog Shop on that oh, tour. First best tour. And like, God, I'm still clamming like a motherfucker. Well, the the Jap tour was total clams, because you know we're working it out in front of people. Yeah, it's different in the re- studio. You can stop <laughs> for sure, and you can go back and fix it. And that there was never any clams. It was a clean boat. Um, but actually, it was recorded very strange because I did. I was really afraid of copying the Minutemen because I used a lot of Minutemen techniques. So I had Raul and Tom Watson. Raul Morales, Tom Watson, record the guitar and drums first. Hmm. I didn't want him to hear the bass. I thought, why not remove the only Minuteman? Because I was using the small. In fact, I was inspired to do the piece by uh, listening to the Minuteman again. You know, I couldn't listen to him after D. Boone got killed. Yeah. And then uh, these, in 2005, these kids... Um, Tim Irwin and Keith Sheeran made a documentary, We Jam Econo. So I had to listen. They wanted to talk to me about the band, so I had to listen to this stuff again. And I liked it. It's and a great talk. that kind of music again. But I couldn't copy my guys, Georgie and D. Boone. Yeah. I thought, well, if I repurposed it, if I made a third, I never thought I was going to do a third one, third opera. I'll make the libretto about something Minutemen would never write about, which is middle age, because we never got that far. <laughs> Thought about old, didn't want to be that, but yeah. didn't write about middle age. And then I'll make it part of one big song, which was kind of like a Minuteman gig. And I was inspired by, I was playing with the Stooges in Spain, in Madrid. Yeah. There's a museum right there by the hotel called the Prado. And I saw some, his, he's called it El Bosco, but Hieronymus Bosch. Yes, okay. okay. And I saw his works, uh, which I really liked as a, as a boy looking in encyclopedia, but here they were in real life, and I thought, this is like a Minuteman gig or a Minuteman album. And this is how I can make the third opera be its own thing and not rip off D. Boone and George. Wow, okay. And cause... all the little creatures, the little men, became characters... In my opera. Okay. that okay. I was looking at the cover. I'm like, that looks like the egg guy from the painting. Yeah. And like... That's in... Uh, 90% of them, 27 of the men come from three of his works. Okay. That one's from Last Judgment that's in Vienna. Did, um, um, and others are from Garden of Earthly Delights in Madrid at the Prado. And then nine more are from Temptation of St. Anthony in Lisbon, Portugal. And then there's one each from three other paintings. Hey, Wayne, Stone Surgeon, and uh, Adoration of the Magi. But, you know, there's one called Flute Hornblowing Man. Yeah. And it's because some people say what they were was that kind of aphorisms based on, you know, like blowing your own horn, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody egomaniac, right? But I don't know 500-year-old Dutch, so I made up my own thanks for this and it's about a guy in middle age and it seems like middle age for guys is about thinking about what is it to be a guy because the guy parts start leaving you yeah and so i mixed in it with it dorothy from the wizard of oz the movie not the books so look, look they, they use several of mr bomb's books to make that movie but what 
in the movie, she sees the farmhands at the beginning. Well, they end up in her trip to Oz in her dream. They're the lion, the tin man, and the scarecrow. So it's Dorothy's tripping on guys. Yeah. What is it to be a man? And that's why it's got 30 man, right? It's the hyphenated man. Mm. Well, the man is anything that society is trying to put on him to be. Yeah. He never really gets to decide himself until middle age. Because by that time, it's like, fuck it. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Most people, that's when they define. 20 years old and get the uh, Corvette convertible and the 20-year-old girlfriend. And, <laughs> or you can deal with it. Where I got a lot of experience, even though my body is breaking down. And so that's how I reconciled the whole fucking thing. And it ain't a crisis. It's just a part of the journey. And because the first one had such a sad ending, contemplating the engine room. Yeah. And then the second one had a happy ending. I lived. I, I didn't want to repeat myself. So it's kind of a wheel. It's just I'm in the middle. It was supposed to have no beginning, no end. But if I played all 30 parts at once, it would have been very difficult for us. It also would have been very short. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had to play one piece at a time, but in a perfect wheel, in a perfect world, it was like a hub with 30 spokes. Going at the same... Oh, yeah, okay. middle, the middle is a weird place. Yeah, you know? yeah. it is. Middle life, and it's always been kind of made out to be a weird, scary thing, but it's just part of the journey. And so I thought, the main thing was I could get away from repeat myself as a Minuteman with you still using Minuteman things for the music. Try and wrap my mind around that record since then. And like, um, is the kind of on the idea of men within the 30 songs, there's one where it's, um, pinned to the table, man. And yeah, yeah. That was supposed to be the only instrumental. Okay. And then it was going to be the last, it, it was going to be the, the middle song. Yeah. No, no, it was going to be at, right after the middle song. Man, shit, man was going to be last. Gotcha. Because then it's kind of like a. Wheelbound man was in the middle. Because that's the hub, the wheel. Then, okay. But, and All I right. said, people aren't going to understand my fucking Mobius loop, <laughs> endless loop. And they're going to think that my. Final statement is man, shit, man, which is very cynical. Yeah. Was But I had to admit that shit because people do treat each other very bad. But that's not everything. I'm, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a doomster. Yeah. You know, the, the, life is for learning. So even if you have to learn horrible things. Yeah. So I went and I said, every, every tune should have words. Because that's how, I end, and you know, the Pelican ends up on my second opera. Pelicans have no song, no voice. They have no song. And I thought, because at the end, Dante, he's got no words to describe what he's seeing. So I thought some truths are beyond words. But I thought, you know, in this piece here, it's got to have words. So we, I was with the Stooges in St. Petersburg, and I wrote that poem. And then I attached it to the front of Pin to the Table Man. So I turned the instrumental into, like, you know, a piece with words, and I moved it to the middle. And then I put Wheelbound Man at the... That was, that was the only changes I made, because on purpose, I made it in the order I wrote it. So seeing this... Because the whole thing is supposed to take place, like, at once. Yeah. There's not supposed to be one in front of the other, but that's imp 
impossible to like execute. <laughs> I, it would have taken a lot longer time. <laughs> like, yeah. it's really hard to have everything go on at once. So it's got to be one after the other. But I didn't want to do that. You know, first yeah. one had sad ending. Second one had happy ending. Third one, no ending. You know, it's all middle. It's a you know, upper to meet, beginning, middle, end. Right. It's it's not like regular records. These aren't collection of songs. It's yeah. one song with different parts. <coughs> now, a, I never thought I would write these things. Right, I come from the Minutemen where you write very little songs. Yeah. But it just seems like these things I want to talk about, like Losing D. Boone, and then that sickness that almost killed me, and then Middle Age, I just couldn't get it in one song. And the big inspiration for all three of those things for me, as far as form, is the who. On Happy mm. Jack had this song called uh, A Quick One, Why He's Away. Yeah. That's, me and D-Boom were way into that. We didn't like Tommy so much. Okay. But we really liked The Quick One. And that's what I was kind of making it off of. And a little bit of sellout. Yeah. But the idea of integrating everything into one book, not an anthology, but a book, you know, a novel chapters with chapters yeah 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 wow I, that's beautifully done like each opera um the kind of speak about the first one a little bit how you say it ends very sad or ends on a sad note which story-wise it does but how you one thing about that last track that i mean i can see the coltrane in it, it the wave of sound that's splashing with like well i so beautifully uh, executed Nels Klein, a great interpreter of the story. You know, I had Easel there, and him, Steve Hodges, every day we did a, another part of it. And I would tell him, because that all happens in one day. Yeah. It took two weeks to record it, but the whole thing takes place in one day. I used the schema from Mr. Joyce with his Ulysses. So the whole mm -hmm. history of the Minuteman is in one day. And so, and but the, also, it's my pop's life in the Navy. Yeah. So I, I superimposed the stories. And, you know, I lost them both. But yeah. I was finally dealing, it with my, dealing with it with my artwork. Yeah, and Shore Duty is, uh, it was heavy, heavy. You know, I did four tours of that thing, and it, it was really hard. I'd cry every fucking time. And it was really hard. And the second one, I only did three tours. And it, even though it had the happy ending... It was, I had to live through the first parts, which was, and I used uh, Dante Alighieri's uh, schema for uh, Comedia, uh, Inferno, Paradiso, uh, Purgatory, Paradiso. So the sickness was the hell, the Purgatory was get the healing and then get to do the bass and do the kayak. <laughs> yeah. It was heaven. But I had to live through that hell part. It was too much. So I did, actually did five tours out of the third one. But all those things, it seemed they had kind of a shelf life. Like, you couldn't do them forever. Well, as an artist, and you're moving well, you on. Well, you didn't feel them like they were just wrote. You wanted to feel them. I think I wanted to be emotionally attached, even yeah. though it hurt. Yeah. Like, and I, I could totally get moving out of that. Because you got to experience it, whatever it is. You know what I mean? If it's pain or if it's joy, you got to be in that moment to the fullest and go through all the things. And if you cut yourself out of that, 
I think that uh, for anyone, it's like taking a shortcut, right? Like yeah. we're talking about other shit. Yeah, and there ain't any. And it's gonna you're jiving, come. You're, you're, you're jiving yourself. Yeah, and it comes back later somehow. Like if you don't fully experience oh, this pain now, it comes within something else, or and, and takes from. It almost discredits the. You're not letting that pain be as much as it. It makes no sense to say you want that pain, but. To be in that moment and fully ex- just express, be with it, and then be able to fully move on from it. You got to fully be with it, and with because I think um when you I think I heard an interview with you saying that it was with the uh, the last um, Firehose record that all this stuff kind of came down with your dad, Steve, right? Mister Machinery Operator. No, he's already dead by then. He dies while I am recording. Flying the flail in '91. That's it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that was heavy. There's no songs about him there. I don't. I won't. I won't deal with it. I won't deal with D Boone or my father until the first opera. That's why it hits it's so too heavy. hard. It's too hard, right? It's, it's, uh, or it's too hard for why? Maybe other people, but I just couldn't. If you had the trait for you, two people that have profoundly changed your life are those two people. And I think that first opera is a beautiful memorial and beautiful way to experience that. And like as a fan of your music or as someone just listening and like doing research on it, I think that's a beautiful cap for it or beautiful, uh, not cap, but uh, what's a, I think memorial is the word I'm looking for. And I can't, I can't imagine writing something like that and being in that. I think you do crazy amount of gigs. When you go on the road, you're hitting like 50 gigs straight, and you drive oh, all that, oh, which is, yeah. <laughs> which is. I mean, we come from the school of Black Flag. Those dudes would do four month, hundred gig tours. Yeah. So. And you know, and the tradition goes back before them. It goes to vaudeville, and one of the key spiels about vaudeville is when you're not playing. You're paying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you're not playing, you're paying. So, so yeah, you want you don't want days off. It's a big fucking country. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and so that's why I do a lot of gigs when I play. Yeah, and I don't do days off. Even this last tour I did a year ago was forty five gigs in forty five days. I drove every mile, thirteen thousand three hundred eighty miles. That's a- and I'm not psychic or anything, but yeah. I was tired of getting sick, mm. so I didn't shake anybody's hands. Oh, well, good call on that. Months, it was two months before this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good call on that. I saw them, um, I think... It, it, you know, people got pissed at me too, but man, and I had no idea this was coming, but I was just... You got to have your voice. You got to be able to be healthy to do road gigs like that and just be able to hustle through. I saw you yeah. when you were at the um, when you were at the, the Grog that night on, a, I think it was a Sunday. Yeah. As a fan, the set list that night was... Rocking like more Minutemen than I think I've heard you ever do. Um, well, they're the kind of Minutemen. They're songs that I wrote for the Minutemen. Yeah, the best Minutemen songs. <laughs> there's no, there's an anchor or the this ain't no picnic. And yeah, these are songs that I wrote for the Minutemen, and I thought it would be interesting to play stuff I wrote almost forty years ago. What was that experience like? Do that now, huh? What was that like reliving that? 
Well, the interesting is like politically, the songs made a lot of sense 40 years later. 38 years. 38 years. I, that's incredible that we had made no progress. <laughs> yeah. Musically wise, uh, they were interesting too. That they, 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 this is one of the reasons why I wrote the third opera and why I was listening to that stuff again. I wanted to use that music because there's no filler. Yeah. The songs are like distilled, they're boiled down to the bare nothing. Just the essential shit, and then it's done. And, you know, I like that idea. I mean, we got the idea from this England band called Wire. Yeah. They had an album called Pink Flag in <clears throat> 1977. Yeah. Profound on us. Because people thought we, we thought for sure people would know we were learned from Blue Oyster Cult and Creed. And so, but if we use these guys' format, they might not know or not right away. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and so and I, and I still think it's interesting to use that short format, and that's one reason why I did it on that tour. Also, I didn't have my real Missy Man drummer, uh, Raul Morales. I had a young guy. Uh, he was great too. Gagular. He did. He did do good, and and he was twenty two years old. That was the same age we started Minutemen at. Whoa. So in a way, I thought it was a weird kind of like parallel. Him doing thirty eight year old music, but. It, those guys were 22 then. Yeah. So it's like in our place. He was actually in our place where, I, yeah, I'm an older guy doing my younger music. But he's actually doing the thing. And he ain't a minute man. That's awesome. He's a drummer man, you know. But yeah. I put him right in front of the stage. And I thought that was interesting. It was like, you know what? Maybe music is music. It's not just for one time. It can go, it can transcend time. And look, this big man, he's here working this shit with all his heart out. And it's not like some anachronism, like old-fashioned, old-timey shit. He can make it just as current as... And fuck, the subject matter was pretty much the same. It, it was kind of bizarre, and that's why I did it. But I thought it would be jive to do George Hurley songs or Dee Boone songs. So I just did Mike Watt songs from those days. That's awesome. That's, it's so surreal to kind of have... Someone at that age living the moment that... And, and, and Tom Hudson yeah. is from those days, right? He was in Slavoli uh, then, a band called Slavoli from Manhattan Beach. Now, he's not a Pedro guy, but only like 15, 16 miles away. And we were part of the punk scene. So in a way, Tom Hudson's you know, the bridge to the old days. And then the big man was the new guy, right? Yeah. And I was just trying to show people what, 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 what doing all these gigs... And you know, rock and roll for, for, and the movement and stuff. All these years, what it means to me, and by, by by playing that older stuff, and making it like it was, I just wrote it. Yeah. The room, like, you know, I use a lot of ethics of vaudeville. I really think that's a great tradition to come from. Where you know, there was time yeah. when people they had to work at the farm or the factory all day. There was no TV. There was no radio. People had to travel from town to town to do stuff for them and i feel like one of those and, and that's the way i feel i don't feel entitled at all those people work all week they pay money to see the gig that was a sunday night too i remember yep. and uh we got we got to do this no matter what situation something came that waylaid us a little bit but or even minimum all that no, no, and i got you got to know this too but i wrote that thing I, I didn't write it on the bass right i didn't let those guys listen to the bass until that record came out because I thought that was the way to keep it from being Minutemen. In fact, yeah. I got rid of only Minutemen. So I wrote that all on D. Boone's Telecaster. No way. And then I these palsy-ass demos and gave them.
All right, guys, stay tuned for part two. Uh, There's no good way to chop this interview up. But next week, Mike Watt, part two.